This is Andy Ho, host of the Continuing Education Series, a podcast produced for the members of the French Language Division of the American Translators Association, offering educational content about the craft of French to English and English to French translation and the division. Tom West is a lawyer, a linguist, and a 30-year veteran of the translation profession. He received his law degree from the University of Virginia, his master's in German from Vanderbilt University, and his bachelor's degree in French summa cum laude from the University of Mississippi. In addition to French, Tom translates from German, Spanish, and Dutch into English, and is ATA certified in all four, and he also speaks Russian, Swedish, and Afrikaans. Tom was admitted to the State Bar of Georgia in 1990 and began practicing law, and then in 1995, he founded the legal translation agency Intermark Language Services, He also served as president of the ATA from 2001 to 2003. He has conducted workshops around the world and currently teaches French legal translation online at two universities in the U.S. while continuing to freelance. Welcome, Mr. (laughs) Do-It-All. Thank you. It's good to be with you today. So the reason I've asked uh, Tom West of our very own FLD, French Language Division, to be with me here today is because Tom, in addition to all the things that I've just spouted off, is that Tom has also written three dictionaries, which is already crazy because, first of all, I've never known anybody who's written a dictionary. And second of all, a dictionary is just something I've always taken so much for granted, Um it's sort of a piece of infrastructure in a linguist's life that you sort of assume has always been there and will always be there. You kind of forget that a human at some point had to sit there and create the whole thing from whole cloth. So first of all, uh, let me just list the titles of your books. There is the Spanish English Dictionary of Law and Business. There's, uh, it's up to its second edition. There's the Trilingual Swiss Law Dictionary which contains French, English, and German. And then we have the Swedish English Law Dictionary. Um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the uh, Swedish subtitle for that. I'll let you try that. Uh, But so, Tom, first off, what gave you the idea to even write a dictionary? Well, you know, these books were really born out of a crisis, I would say. When I left my law firm in 1995 to become a full-time legal translator and operate a legal translation agency. I had a Spanish to English legal dictionary that I had bought actually on a business trip to Argentina. And I thought I was ready to go. And uh, at the very same time, another lawyer left my law firm, but he went to the largest law firm in Miami to continue practicing law. And as you can imagine, Miami is a place where they do business with every country in Latin America. So he put me in touch with that law firm and I began getting legal documents in Spanish. But the trick was that on Monday, the documents might be from Chile, but on Tuesday from Argentina and on Wednesday from Guatemala and on Thursday from Mexico and on Friday from Honduras. And what I discovered was that the terminology of all these different, there are 20 altogether Spanish-speaking jurisdictions, was not in the dictionary that I had that was, I think actually, I bought it in Argentina, but I think it was actually from Spain. So I began trying to collect the terms that were so hard to figure out. Now you have to remember, this was 1995. So the internet was in its infancy. I don't think we even had the internet 
maybe even in 1995, but at any rate, you certainly couldn't do what you can do to, today. And I spent countless hours going to libraries. I went to the Library of Congress. I went to the Library of the University of Puerto Rico Law School. Um, I went to Columbia University Law School Library and just tried to figure out a lot of these things. I was also, because I found it so interesting, I would also do things like call a lawyer at a, at a law firm in Santiago de Chile and ask him, what does this mean? It was that didn't always work exactly because a lot of times it's hard to explain a term to somebody in a way that makes sense. But anyway, um, yeah, so that's how the Spanish dictionary got started. And then the Swiss dictionary was also born out of crisis because it turns out that the Swiss German legal language is pretty different or can be really different from legal language in Germany. So in the early days, in the 90s, I had a client in Switzerland, and I sent a document to a freelance translator. And it was due, let's say, back to me at 6 p.m., but he was late. So he got it to me, let's say, at 11 p.m., and I was supposed to send it off to Switzerland. And he wrote in the cover letter, he said, there were like 46 terms in this document that I couldn't figure out. I hope you can figure them out. Good luck. And so there I sat at 11 o'clock at night, no, no internet to speak of. And I thought, my goodness. I mean, no wonder he's no wonder it took him longer and no wonder he couldn't figure it out. It was just nowhere to be found. The the, the dictionaries from Germany, there there's some good legal dictionaries from Germany, but they didn't have Swiss terms. I mean, Switzerland is not Germany, it's a different country. So um I can't remember what I did in that crisis situation, but I began keeping track of Swiss because I didn't want to have to do it again. And you can't keep it all in your head. So that's how that one started. So okay. <laughs> those were both big crises that's that uh, that was the that were the crises were the the impetus to get started. So you just basically noticed a hole in the market, a need for these things and decided, well, no one else has done it. I'll do it myself. That was how it went. Yeah, a hole not only in the market, but also in my uh, ability to provide what my clients needed because, uh, you know, the, the, oftentimes, especially with Spanish, I was dealing with, I was translating for American lawyers. They didn't know either, you know, I mean, the, how would, why would they know what the term meant in Honduras? I mean, they weren't a Honduran lawyer, they were an American lawyer. So it was, yeah, it was very, I think I also liked the challenge. It was kind of like a treasure hunt. And, it, and believe me, it's taken all these years. It's now 2024, and there's still terms that I'm researching and trying to figure out. And But, but things have gotten a lot better. I mean, uh, it took a really long time, especially for smaller countries, to have all their laws online. And But now they do. I mean, but back then, I mean, there wasn't even the Internet. And then gradually there was the Internet, but then only large countries had a lot of stuff online, not not smaller countries. So, but that's changed. Okay. So I guess that sort of half answers my next question about how did you go about choosing the terms for the dictionary? So the answer is perhaps you sort of had a glossary built up and, and went from there. Yeah, that's, that is true for the Spanish one for sure. But I, because I just began putting words in a glossary with Spanish. 
right from the very beginning. Now with Swiss, Swiss, French, and Swiss German, I did it more, much more systematically because, for one thing, it's a lot more, um, it's a lot easier to do Switzerland systematically because it's one jurisdiction, <laughs> and and the law that's in French is identical, or that's not right, but it's it's equally authentic with the law that's in German. So there, there's no confusion there. Anyway. What I did to compile the Swiss dictionary was I sat down with the major codes and there's a there's a comparison feature on the Swiss law site where you can show the different languages and they uh, side by side so you can click on show me French, German and English all at once. And that was that way I just compiled the terminology from looking at the the codes and then I also put in terms that I had come across over the years to flesh it out but i didn't it wasn't as much of a hodgepodge as the spanish was at first where i was just throwing things in here and there and i'll tell you something interesting about the spanish one is that of course when i would see a term let's say in a document from colombia i didn't know whether that was only used in colombia or maybe only in colombia and ecuador which is the country right next door or whether it was used in all countries and so sometimes um people would look up something in my Spanish dictionary and say, I see that you say that it means this, but I don't see how it could possibly mean that in my document. It turned out, aha, that's because it doesn't mean that in your document. That's because your document is from Chile and it's not from Ecuador. So, I mean, I don't know. That's not a good example, but yeah, that, that's, the, that's the fascinating thing about Spanish legal terminology is that it varies so much. Yeah. So your book says that uh, for the Spanish version, that it covers legal terms from all Spanish-speaking countries. That's what it says, all Spanish-speaking countries. How did how is that possible? There's so many of them. Do you have a listing for every single one? No, yeah, I think you have to see what I was trying to say. What I meant was there are terms in here from all 20 Spanish-speaking countries. I oh, didn't mean I I've managed to come up with every single term that's from every single of one of the 20 countries. No, no, I mean, that would be completely impossible. Um, and even to this day, it's not always clear to me whether a term is only used in one of the countries, two of the countries, all of the countries. That can be hard to to, to judge. Um, you'd have to have, you'd probably have to have studied law in 20 countries. And who would have done that? No one. I mean, it's impossible. There's not a lot, enough time in a lifetime to do that. So. Uh, so for the, was it the same for the Swedish book? Again, you just saw a need and, and went for it? Yeah, yeah. And particularly uh, because I was pretty annoyed with the only dictionary that seemed to be available. It, it struck me as not being very accurate. And also Sweden is a, is a, a smaller jurisdiction. I mean, it's so much easier to do Switzerland and Sweden than to, to do anything with Spanish because there's just too much variety in Spanish, although that does make it interesting. Whereas Sweden, you know, I didn't, they do speak Swedish in Finland, but I didn't bother with Finland. I just looked at Sweden and that was, that was, that was um, fair enough. Yeah, it was, and it was, it's also a much, the, the Swedish dictionary is also much smaller. You know, it's just not a very big topic compared to Spanish. Um, did you have to do much research to become familiar with each legal system? Oh, I, I did so much research. 
it would blow your mind. I mean, I, 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 I like to read about the law and, um, I, I, I do it constantly. I've read so much about the law in all these jurisdictions, um, going on 35 years now. So, yeah. And I still have a lot to learn, but it's just, it, it interests me. And so I just, I, I research constantly, but it is, it has gotten a lot easier. I mean, I haven't been to the law library of Congress since about 1997 because I don't have to go there anymore. Not that I, I would love to go, but I mean, back then it was either that or not be able to figure it out because, you know, you, especially with Latin American law, the local libraries don't have, well, that's not even true. Not even with a, a, a big legal system like France, you can't go to a, a local library necessarily and find a bunch of books on French law. They don't have them. Why would they? I mean, you know? So how did you verify the terms? What were some of the strategies you used? Well, one was that I, you know, I would call back in the day, I would call people or I would, um, I was fortunate enough to be able to travel a lot um, back then and went to conferences in different places where I would meet uh, lawyer linguists and I would ask them. I would, again, I did a lot of reading. Um, and to this day, there's still things that I have questions about. There are things that are pretty hard to translate because they don't exist in American law. And so the question is, what do you do with that? And it's not always clear what the answer should be. So in those cases, do you perhaps offer an explanation of, uh, say, the foreign term and then? That's exactly right, Andy. And the funny thing is that one person criticized an entry in my Spanish dictionary because he said, this is just an explanation. I just want a one word term that I can plug into my translation. I thought, well, there isn't one. <laughs> I mean, I wish there were one. Welcome to but... translation, buddy. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, well, I mean, you could make up something and then you could put it in quotation marks and say, from now on, this is what I'm going to call this. But, you know, that's not that doesn't always work either. So I think that's when lay people say some a word is untranslatable when there's not a single perfectly corresponding word. They say it's untranslatable, but then they go on to tell you what it means in the source language, which is for us. A translation of it. Exactly. I agree with you. I, I I don't really believe the myth that there are all these untranslatable words. I think it's what you just said. I think there are plenty of words that can't be said in one word in English. <laughs> okay. But that doesn't mean they're untranslatable. It means they, they're not translatable with one word. That's a different story. So did you work with an editor on your books? As we all know, a second pair of eyes or third, fourth, fifth is always helpful. Oh, that is an understatement. And I would say that on the, let's see, on the Swedish and the Swiss, all these languages, all these start with an S, the Swedish and the Swiss, I have not really had any help. On the Spanish, or, or an editor at all, on the Spanish one, though, because it's been a work in progress since 1997, I think is when the first edition was published, or maybe 1999, I've had so many people uh, help and contribute and and look at it and edit and revise and um, that has just been fantastic. I've had so many people who've contributed terms or who've said I don't think you got this right. Look at this again or who've um, helped me figure things out. That yeah. So the Spanish has had a lot of editors. The um, Swiss and the Swedish haven't. So. 
Um, what kind of program did you use to uh, create the physical book itself to lay out the the pages? Isn't that a good question? Because you're going to be disappointed with the answer, and that is, I've just used Microsoft Word, and I think that that's bad from the because. Um, it, it, it's not sophisticated enough. There's a there's a great dictionary creation software called Translex that's put out in, in South Africa, and I actually have a license for it, but I'm not the greatest computer user in the world, and I never got up to speed with that, and I kept using Word. Okay, here's the thing. Some people say, well, why didn't you at least use Excel? Well, because as far as I could see, and maybe I'm wrong about this, there's not a lot of spell check support for Excel. Excel was meant for numbers, not for words. And you really need a spell checker. And I'll tell you why, because if there's a, if you've got some sort of autocorrect going on and you type the French word responsable with an A, it's going to change it to responsible with an I in the blink of an eye. You won't even see it. It's going to automatically fix that so-called spelling error because it doesn't know that you're writing in French rather than English. So that has been a problem. And to this day, I would really love to get it in a, get all of them in a database, but I need, I'd need some assistance with that. Call me. <laughs> I will. <laughs> yeah. I have to say uh, one of my biggest pet peeves with Microsoft Word is when I write in French it automatically corrects it to something else, you know, because it thinks it's English. And then suddenly it realizes I'm writing in French and that same word that it corrected into, into something English, now it says I spelled it wrong. Oh, it makes me want to tear my hair out. Yeah, it's pretty frustrating. I so agree. I did a semester in Switzerland. Uh, I, I understand uh, what you're saying about how just because they speak French and German doesn't mean the legal system is very much like France or Germany. Switzerland is very much its own thing, governmental-wise. Why did you omit Italian from the Swiss dictionary? I know it's very much a minority language in Switzerland, but it's still technically uh, an official language. Yeah, you're right. And the answer is probably that I shouldn't have omitted it. But the simple truth is that I absolutely do not speak Italian. I don't know any Italian. And I that was just too much for me. I couldn't look at Italian terms and really tell very much about them. I mean, granted, Italian's a romance language and I speak French and Spanish. Uh, that is true. But um, yeah, I, I just, it was, that was just too much. And, and also, you know, to some extent, my ultimate motivation in writing dictionaries was for my own use. And because I don't speak Italian and therefore don't translate Italian, I've never had any need for uh, an Italian dictionary. So that that's one, that's another reason why. But you're right in the sense that several people have said that to me. What the wait a minute, you left out one of the official languages. Wait, that's not good. I thought, well, I would have needed a, a co-author and I don't know of one to do the Italian because I really don't know Italian. So out of the 3, which book has sold the best? Well, the Spanish has for sure, but for two reasons. One is that it's been in print for so long. Um, it's been around for a really long time. And the other, because there are just a lot of translators working with Spanish and English in the world. I mean, really, I mean, compare, especially compared to Swedish, I would say. And then the, um, the Swiss one is also a bit of a niche market um, because 
a lot of translators who do French or German are getting the most getting most of their documents from either France or Germany, not necessarily from Switzerland. Anyway, that, so that's the answer. It's the Spanish one for sure. So uh, I, I didn't think of this before, but so we have Spanish English and Swedish English. Does that mean they are not English Spanish and English Swedish? That's such a good question. And I'll tell you why, because you really can't completely flip a legal dictionary. If you see what I mean, you can't take a Spanish to English list of legal terms and just reverse them because you'd be missing all of these terms that don't exist in the other country. So let's just take a, a, a funny American legal term like motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. Okay, that doesn't exist in France or Switzerland or Germany or Spain or so you would have to think of a way to say that. And that's not going to be in the Spanish to English or the whatever to English because it, it never existed in the other direction. And, and there, there are thousands of examples of terms like that that just don't exist in the other system. And so they're not going to be there. Plus, the other thing is if you flipped a dictionary, you would get all these weird things, these English terms that are more explanations of something, let's say, in French law. And it would you would think, why is this in this list of English terms? That's not really an English term at all. It's just an explanation. What's it? So you'd have to really it would be, a, in other words, it would be a, a completely separate project. You would have to sit down with that English list. You'd have to, after you flipped it, you'd have to take out all the ones that don't apply, and then you'd have to add thousands that do apply. So that's that's a different, it's another project I've never Interesting. Done. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Okay. So then, so for instance, your Swedish to English, uh, Swedish English dictionary, it's really most useful for someone translating from Swedish to English. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, in theory, you could flip it and you'd have a lot of core terminologies, things like words like judge, court, divorce, adoption. Those exist. Those are legal terms and they exist pretty much in all Western legal systems. I mean, I would say in all of them. But that long term I quoted a minute ago, that's very uh, American. And so is a term like arraignment. There's no arraignment in France. I mean, you'd have to figure out a way to say arraignment in French, it's, but it wouldn't have been in the French to English legal dictionary because there, there wasn't, it, there's no French term. You'd have to come up with one. I'm not saying that you couldn't. I'm just saying that because there's no arraignment, there wouldn't be, that would never have been in there in the, the, the French to English. You Once you flipped it, you'd have to add that. So are there plans for any more dictionaries, any updated editions, any more publications from uh, the, the famous Tom West? Well, there are th three answers. The first answer is um, I've been trying to get the third edition of the Spanish dictionary ready for years, and it really just needs to come on and be published. Um, and I've got someone helping me with that right now. So hopefully it will be out anytime. The second thing is I've been working on a French to English legal dictionary for years, and it's pretty much done as well, except for the last minute things. And so that also needs to be finished. And it's, I mean, it's not really that far off, um, I think, from, from being ready. I think that my problem is that I keep tweaking it. And I think at some point you just have to say, stop get it out there. And even if there's still some mistakes or if there's a typo, 
you've at least gotten it out there and then people can write to you and say, oh, I think there's a typo on page 59. And then for the next edition, you fix the typo. Because if you if you wait, it'll never it'll never happen. And that's what I've been doing. I've been waiting. OK, and the third thing is and this to me, in a way, is as much as I like legal language, to me, this, this third one I'm going to tell you about is almost the most interesting to me. And that is. I've been putting together a French to English legal diction. I'm sorry, a French to English dictionary for translators. And what it is, is a dictionary of all those terms, those, not terms, all those words that are super difficult to translate, like aménagement and um, words that I see where I think, wow, how would you, yeah, anime, how would you say that? And um, it, it's got lots of things like, um, here's, here's one, uh, faire rêver to make and literally to make dream so but if you said l'histoire d'amour the the love story qui a fait rêver l'amérique that made america dream uh-uh that doesn't work so so you have to think what would i put for that i mean i understand that what faire rêver literally means so it's it would be something like the love story that captured america's heart okay so that's a little bit that's pretty far from faire rêver but that's a good solution and so those kinds of things i've been putting in there for years things like faire rêver could mean could be translated as to capture their heart or capture their attention or whatever. So, um, and I've, I've also been a, an avid reader of the French news magazine, L'Express for years, which is sort of like their time magazine or Newsweek or something. And um, yeah, so I, I try to do this regularly. I sit down and just make notes of things I see in the articles that I think would be hard to translate or that, that I've never seen before or new words. Um, here's something funny. I, back when Sarkozy was president of France, they called him le président bling bling. Okay, now I don't read um, fashion magazines, obviously. And so I didn't know that bling bling is actually an American thing that people say. So I thought bling bling was a, a French term. And so I thought of these ways to say le président bling bling, uh, the, the showy president, or I can't remember really what I came up with. Um, show uh, I can't remember but but it turned out that bling bling wasn't a French thing anyway it was American but I didn't know that and I'm also not sure if you can say the bling bling president but maybe you can I, I that's bling is just not a word that was in my vocabulary in English so I took it to be French when it's really is English isn't that right I mean don't people talk about a necklace or a bracelet or something being bling yeah absolutely i just yeah. don't know about you know that exact construction whether it would sound correct or get the idea across correctly but yeah absolutely you refer to something big and ostentatious as blingy or his bling yeah i think it's because i'm old <laughs> we didn't have that that expression when i was growing up i didn't i never heard it and i just i guess the people that i'm around don't say it and i i I took bling, le président bling bling. I thought, oh, how would you say that in English? <laughs> and then somebody told me, actually, bling bling is English. I thought, oh, I didn't know that. I have learned uh, just off topic here, a lot of French slang, current, I guess, French slang from following certain social media accounts that posts, um, they post pictures, uh, sorry, po uh, stories, user submitted stories about embarrassing things that happened to them. Um, so I've learned all sorts of terminology about youth culture, you know, like hooking up with someone, essentially a one night stand or things you do in bed, or even the terms 
equivalent to, you know, going number one or going number two, um, it comes up in conversation in these embarrassing stories. And I've picked up on some, uh, some interesting terms. Yeah. And sometimes you need to know off the wall things to read the press. And, and I don't know to what extent people translate uh, articles, but over my career as a translator, I have been asked to translate articles from the ma- from a magazine or newspaper not not particularly often but it does come about and, and it tends to be kind of a nice breath of fresh air it's very different from translating a contract or a court decision to to translate a, an article written by a journalist and that's where you come across these things these these expressions i find like it even harder to oh, translate articles oh yeah absolutely i'd say it's much harder yeah i would yeah but that's where you come across things like um what I said earlier, uh, l'histoire d'amour qui a fait rêver l'Amérique. Uh, you know, we all know what that faire means to make and that rêver means to dream. That's not hard at all, but it can be a challenge to think of what to put for made America dream. I mean, that's not right. You can't say that in English. You have to think harder than that. And that's what translation is all about. That's right. Yeah. So I've been... Uh, putting those things in a, in a glossary for years and years and years. And it, it could really probably be put out there pretty soon too, except that the problem with dictionaries is it's not like a novel. You don't sit down and write chapter one and then chapter two and chapter, you just put things in it over time. And so at, at the end, somebody needs to sort of start at the beginning. And it's hard to read because you, you can't read it like a novel. It's just a list of words. So it's not, it's a, it's a strange thing to proofread. So then in the end, what would you say to someone who is perhaps thinking of making their own dictionary? Any advice, uh, hard-earned experience? I think it's a, it's a pretty hard thing to do. And if I would only do it if you really enjoy it because it's, um, yeah, I think Samuel Johnson, the, the author of a famous English dictionary, said that lexicographers were harmless grudges or something like that. Uh, and um, yeah, it's just a whole lot of grunt work, kind of. But I find it really interesting. I'll tell you something here at the end, and that is that when I was a senior in high school, they made us write a paper on what we wanted to do with our lives. Unfortunately, I can't find that paper. I guess I didn't keep it, but I do remember the main thing that I wrote. And I think this is so crazy. And also, um, what a strange thing to write, but high school kids are kind of strange. I wrote, I want to live life in a world of words. I don't know what I meant by that. What, is, what does it mean to live life in a world of words? But the ironic thing is that that's kind of what I've ended up doing. I mean, in the translation business for 30 years and, and all these dictionaries, I mean, I really have ended up living life in a world of words. But what a crazy notion for a 17-year-old kid to have. But that apparently that's the notion that I had. It was there all along. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> what a thing. All right, Tom. Well, thank you so much for this very interesting conversation. Um, We look forward to anything else you may put out soon. And I will put links uh, to to your books in the show notes. That's great. Thanks. I enjoyed talking to you. This concludes our episode for today. You can subscribe to the Continuing Education Series podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for Continuing Education Series. You can contact the FLD at divisionfld at atanet.org 
Visit our website at www.ata-divisions.org FLD or get in touch with us on social media. This is Andy Ho signing off. Thanks for listening and a bientôt.